Now you may remember from a month ago that uh, we looked back in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 at David's final prayer. And we saw that David's God oozed greatness and power and glory and victory and majesty from all aspects of his very being, all of which were and are essential attributes of this God who is unchangeable and permanent. And we discovered that this God is a God who gives and gives abundantly. And the temple was yet to be built, but the gifts from the king and the people had come in, amazingly. And people were waiting to start, not only to build it, but to serve within it and to worship within it. And we came to the conclusion that we should pray not just for what God can give to us, but also what we can give back to God. Because after all, he was the giver to us. And it wasn't giving of just our money and our goods, but also of our talents and even our imagination. How's your imagination this evening? Because from that, the community that we live, we work, we play and we worship within would then be transformed to God's glory. Wouldn't you like to see that for Ringwood? But now, the chronicler has uh, moved on in his story. The remnant of Israel, uh, you may remember, have uh, returned from exile and the, the chronicler is giving them a potted version of history. The great King David has died And his son Solomon is now on the throne. Solomon has already had a first encounter with the living God and he received the gift of wisdom. And in chapter 26, the preceding chapter, Solomon has prayed this great prayer to his God. Here in our first reading from the first three verses in chapter 7, we hear the chronicler, Uh, regaling one of those great moments of the Old Testament, one of the wow moments when the glory of the Lord came down and filled the temple to overflowing. That must have been an amazing sight. Or at least it is in my imagination. But then I've got a pretty vivid imagination. And the people fell down in worship of a great God who was their God. And this was a great scene of abundant, joyful worship, sacrifice to this amazing and almighty God. In the passage we've got before us tonight, in verses 11 to 22, the temple is now complete, as Adam said. Solomon is now probably sleeping in his palace, He's got his nightcap on and he's snoring his head off. It's now been 13 years since he prayed that prayer. He must be a patient man unless he was wrestling with God in prayer and having an argument with him as Steve Brady would indicate from a few weeks ago. 
And during those 13 years, Solomon must have wrestled with God a lot in prayer. I know I would have done, I do it after one day. And then one night, God himself turns up. We're not sure how, but he turns up. And here the chronicler reveals what God has said to Solomon. Now the original readers and hearers are a remnant of the great nation of Israel that returned to their land after being in exile. Yes, they cried too. They are probably wondering what happened because under Solomon, the great nation of Israel had reached its zenith, its pinnacle, and had reached the, the ultimate glory that it could have at the time, and then they fell. They fell. And this remnant were probably wondering what happened. Asking themselves questions like, who is our God? Who are we, Israel, as a nation? Why are we in the situation we find ourselves in? Are these not the questions that you would ask yourself if you were like that? And the chronicler is putting across his own theology as he writes these book of uh, Chronicles. His theology is consistent with the, uh, the writings of the rest of the Old Testament and indeed the New Testament, which was yet to be written. So what does the chronicler wish to convey to the remnant about this God from this encounter with Solomon? But let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed a living God. That you live through the pages of Scripture as the, the Holy Spirit inspired it. And we pray that as we come to this your written word tonight, that we may leave here, not only knowing that we have met with you, but that we can leave here with something more to do, to think about, and to help bring your glory to Ringwood and the communities we serve. And we pray all this through Christ our Lord in the power of the Spirit who lives within us. Amen. And the first thing I see from this passage is that this God is a God of history. All human history is covered beneath his throne. The past, the present and the future. He's a God of Israel's past. God throughout history had made covenants with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses. And here God reminds Solomon of the covenant that he made with his father David. And the covenant promised three things. Do you know them? Did you even know there was a covenant with David? That there would be a land forever. That it would be a dynasty, or dynasty as some people say, but I speak proper. A dynasty without end. And that it would be a perpetual kingdom. But not only is he a God of the past, he's also a God of the present. He has heard the prayers and accepted the temple as a place of worship. Verse 12, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. He is a God of the present because he is speaking to Solomon in Solomon's present. 
visiting Solomon, as I said, probably while Solomon was snoring. Not that I snore. I don't know. I'm all asleep. So he's a God of the past, a God of the present, but he's also a God of the future. And because God is the God of the future, all things are under his control. Even verse 13, when he says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, shows the God of the past, the present, and the future being in control. The Lord God says in this this speech to Solomon, I will, several times, I will hear, I will forgive, I will heal, I will uh, open my eyes, I will establish your throne. But not only of these humanly beneficial things, but also God says in verse 20, I will uproot you up from here and send you into exile, all in the future tense. And in verse 16, I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there for how long? Forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Their God, who is the God of all human history, past, present and future, and he is from everlasting to everlasting. So we have this God who is over all human history, past, present and future. So what else is there here about this magnificent God This God is also a God who lives and lives dynamically. This God is not like the gods of Israel's neighbour, not a mere block of wood, of stone or metal, lumped about and put on a pedestal, have many copies made, bowed to impersonally and chanted maniacally at No, this God of Israel is a God who lives. This God lives and wants to live with his people. God is a God who exhibits his life in at least three ways from this encounter with Solomon. This God is personal. Fourteen times the chronicler uses for God the personal word I. And 14 times he uses me or myself. And then 12 times he uses the word you on a single individual basis, but also as a community or collective you. This God is personal to the individual Solomon, the king of Israel, but he's also personal to the nation of Israel. And the chronicler is intimating that no other nation had enjoyed a dynamic, intimate, robust relationship with a God like Israel did with theirs. Our God is personal, the chronicler cries. Because he is personal, it cries out that he lives. Because if you're not living, you're not personal. This God wants to be intimately involved and interacting with the people and the nation that he had chosen for himself. 
Now read through with me as I share some of these with you and hear how intimate and personal this God is. Listen for the I. I have heard your prayer. I shut. I will forgive. I will heal. I have chosen. I will establish. I have covenanted. I have given. I will uproot. I will reject. I will make. This is a personal God. Listen for the my. Chosen this place for myself. Among my people. Called by my name. Seek my face. My eyes will be open, my ears attentive, my name may be there forever, my heart will always be there, an object of ridicule for my name. Now listen for the you, there themselves and they, indicating Israel. You walk before me faithfully. You do. Your father David. You observe. Your royal throne, their wicked ways, if you turn away and forsake. You go off to serve other gods. They have forsaken the Lord and they embraced other gods. This is a personal, living and dynamic God wanting a personal and dynamic and interactive relationship with his people. Not some mere impersonal uh, piece of wood or stone or metal like the gods of the surrounding nations which people babbled to. And this living God is also responsive. This God, the chronicler writes, has responded to the worship of the people when at the beginning of this chapter we read that glorious scene when his glory filled the temple to overflowing. Their worship was pleasing to him and he acknowledged this with fire. Wow. Verse 1 again. The fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and what filled the, the temple? The glory of the Lord. That must have been, as I said, an awe-inspiring moment when their living God did that. So awe-inspiring that they continued in worship by singing and offering sacrifices. This God responds to his gathered people, but this God also responds and appears to the individual. In this case, King Solomon, their leader. Solomon, uh, giving Solomon a personal answer to his prayer, which we read in chapter, or which we can read in chapter six. And here in uh, verse 17 to 18, God confirms Solomon's anointing as the king and leader of Israel. He reminds Solomon of the importance of the temple. He reminds Solomon of the life of Israel and as a symbol of commitment to the covenant that he made with David. This is a direct response to Solomon's prayer And we read about that bit in verse 16 to 17 of chapter 6. God is personally committed to the line of David. Now, that's all very well. 
when things are going swimmingly and cushy and Israel is being obedient, following the commands and the ordinances of their personal and living God. But what happens if they choose not to obey, not to serve him as they should? Well, then God administers judgment. But then again, God also gives them a way back in verse 14. A way back of what? Humble repentance? However, if they continue to sin and are not repentant, well, that leads us to another part of God being responsive. God judges. And not unjustly or recklessly, but with justice. And in verse 13, let's read it again. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, that's verse 13, droughts and plagues can be used by God to bring people ultimately back to repentance. And in verses 19 to 23, we see what happens if Israel abandons their God and continues in their sinful ways. God abandons them because they first abandoned him. And they went away to embrace other gods, gods of no personality, who were just dead blocks of wood or golden calves. So then God rightly uproots them from the land that he had given them and he rejects the very same temple which he, then cho- which he has also chosen to be a place of prayer and sacrifice. That's the reason Israel were to go into exile, away from the land of promise. But if God is the God who judges and does these things, as I said, he is also the God who enables restoration. When evil befalls Israel, whether that's natural evil or social evil or political evil, it is because of their disobedience and God must judge. He must judge because otherwise he'd be a pretty uh, impotent, capricious, uh, spiteful and fickle God, the God of Dawkins. Wouldn't he? So while God may be the author of disasters, he's also the agent of restoration. So this is a personal God of all history who lives. This God judges disobedience but offers a way back through repentance. And part of his being personal is that this is a God who expects God expects, firstly, that his people to be holy or obedient. How is this? Why does he judge? Because God is holy. He is of utter moral excellence and perfection. There is and can be no stain of sin found within him and he must be totally separated from sin. Holy is what God is. The holiness of God is seen in righteousness, which is holiness in action, or right actions. 
and God's actions conform to his holiness. And justice deals with the absence of righteousness. Sin and disobedience must be dealt with and it must be dealt with through his will. And if God were not holy, he could not and would not be God because he'd have no right to judge. And if he were to cast aside his holiness, even for the briefest of time, he would cease to be God. So God expects also obedience. So not only is he holy, but his people who choose to follow him must also be holy and be seen to live rightly. God expects obedience of his people. Israel, his great nation, were to be a nation of light reflecting this great living and personal God with whom they had a dynamic, intimate and living relationship. They were to be a light to the nations. They alone had the joy of the law of the Lord and they were to live rightly and obediently before God and the surrounding nations. They were to worship this living God and worship him alone. And in verse 17, we see the request to walk with God alone and follow his decrees and his commands. The law of Moses, back in my favourite book of Leviticus. And in verse 19 to 20, as we saw earlier, there was the penalty for idolatry and abandoning this living God. Now, you may well be sitting there thinking, yeah, right, Dave, if God's just and of grace, as you say, he'll provide a way out of these judgments. But you know what? He does. The people can be restored, but how can this be? And verse 14 is the key. This is a key of grace. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. How does he restore? Through the humility and repentance of the disobedient. Even when this great living God is angry, prayers by the disobedient consisting of a humility and repentance are necessary in order to enable God to forgive and heal the destruction that sin and disobedience naturally bring. And in chapter 6, verse 22, or 32 to 33, we can see that there that anyone who acknowledges God's name and authority may pray with utter confidence that this living God would hear their petitions. Seeking God's face with humility is the key. But there may be some people there saying, get on with it, Dave, watch repentance. Repentance is a voluntary change in mind in which the person or the nation turn from a life of disobedience to living a life of obedience to God. 
It's done firstly in the mind or the intellect, if you happen to have one, where it's a recognition of disobedience and guilt before God. And then secondly, it's also an emotional issue, an emotional level, which for us men, particularly us Australian men, is a bit difficult. I'm just a simple boy from the bush. That's an exhibiting of genuine sorrow for disobedience, for disobeying God. And finally, it's also an act of the will. We've all got one of those, haven't we? Some of us are probably a bit more stubborn than others. And it's the decision to turn back to God from disobedience, self-pleasure and self-centeredness. And what is humility? Humility is where total trust is placed in God alone. And he has the priority in all aspects of life. Humility is a lack of pride and of total commitment to God. This is a living and holy and personal God who expects his people to be holy, reflecting his holiness and being prepared to make themselves nothing in order to be restored and for their disobedience to be forgiven. So how can we conclude? What an, have you been able to see what an awesome and great God this is? This is the God who is the God over all human history and outside of history. Humanity's past, humanity's present and humanity's future all covered by this great, amazing and awesome God. Don't worry, I won't break into an American accent. This is a God who is personal and responsive. This is a God who is holy, commands obedience and yet accepts humble repentance. So simple. What a great and almighty God we serve. Not only these things, but he's a God of grace. We saw that in verse 14. And this part of scripture, 2 Chronicles, verses 11 to 22, could very well be a summary of all of 1 and 2 Chronicles, if not the Old Testament itself. And some say that grace is missing from this book. And some people say grace is missing from the Old Testament itself. Well, I want to tell you that's a load of old rubbish. And I do tell people that, as you probably would expect. One aspect of God, of God's grace, that shines through this is in that amazing verse 14. It's only in this version, in uh, 2 Kings 9, Verse 14 is not there. Which is why we have to study Chronicles. Verse 14 again, God's grace is exemplified. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their uh, disobedient ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin 
and heal their land. But so what? What are we to do with and for this God? We are to be personally and collectively obedient to him. Following closely to the leading of the Spirit and following our leaders, the pastors, the elders and the deacons as they seek to follow this great God because we're on a journey together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the Second World War once said this, you can only learn what obedience is by obeying. Let's be an obedient people. How do we do that? By loving God. And how do we show that we love God? By loving others, just as Jesus said. Because this sums up the whole law. The community out there, which we're a part of, whether we like it or not, is looking at us. We have this fantastic new building and I can guarantee you that there will be some people out there just waiting for this adventure that we are on together. They're waiting for it to fail just so they can go like that to us. And there will be, guaranteed. But let's not let that happen. And one of the key areas of obedience concerns idolatry. Now, we may not go off to other gods and, and uh, uh, worship them as Solomon and ancient Israel did, but we can set up false idols of our own, can't we? Both as individuals and collectively. Calvin, he's not quite as good as Luther in my book, wrote, What is idolatry? It's to worship the gifts instead of the giver, the great giver. This is a beautiful building. But let's not worship it and consider it so sanctified even for a moment that it becomes our idol of worship. Let's be thankful to our God for the gift and allow him to use it for the benefit of the whole community and not just for our own sake that each of us ensure that God takes first place over everything in our individual and collective lives. Let's worship alone our great living and personal God who gives abundantly rather than commit disobedient idolatry by worshipping the gifts of the giver. Then finally you may be glad to know, let's hold our leaders up in prayer. Let's hold their arms up that they will be both collectively and individually obedient to God as they are led by the Spirit. As Adam shared this morning, old hairy legs, or Satan as you might like to know him, he likes to stick his nose in and try to get leaders to, to go off track, doesn't he Adam? If you want to know why I call him old hairy legs, check with me after. I can't really say up here. Many churches have built new buildings only for them to come to waste shortly after due to the personal disobedience of the leadership. Let's not be one of those. The church I attended in Australia before coming to the UK 
21 years ago next Saturday. God does have a sense of humour. It was very much like PBC is now. It was growing, it was vibrant. They just finished building a new church building and moved in. Everybody was excited and looking forward to the future. I'm not going to say what specifically what happened, but within two years that church was practically empty. In fact, it's still going, but it hasn't recovered to the way that it was. The leadership were found to have committed both personal and uh, corporate disobedience, and when it became public, decimated the church. Old hairy legs had stuck his nose in. He should have gone and got them waxed. And it decimated the church and it made it a public mockery. Those people who were in leadership are now uh, restored back to personal faith and in the right, right relationship with God. But they had to find humility the hard way. Let's not find humility the hard way. Somebody asked me during the week, if Solomon was the wisest man on earth, how come he fell into idolatry? The answer I gave was not because he had a lot of wives and girlfriends, nor was it suggested by one member of this congregation who shall remain nameless because of the number of mother-in-laws. I said, I think it was because he became proud he forgot not just who he was supposed to be and who he was in God's eyes, but he also forgot who God was. This God who was personal, living and dynamic and that led him to forsake the God of his youth and commit idolatry. So let's go from here, willing to be obedient to this great and awesome God, remembering who we are and who our God is. The great God we love and serve is the, the God of all history, present, past and future. The almighty God who is living, dynamic, uh, personal, responsive, who judges and restores. The God who is holy and expects his followers to be holy, living obedient lives and after disobedience coming quickly to seek repentance. Let's go into our community this week being his voice and his light, confident that our living God is within us. He lives within us now because we are the temple as we engage actively and passively with those who don't yet know this great and awesome God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are of such magnificence that it blows our minds. And yet, and yet, you call us into a personal relationship with yourself because you paid the price through your Son. Help us to be effective and communicate this good news to others this week so that the glory of the Lord may be seen within us collectively and personally. Amen.